We are going to continue on in Mark chapter 3 today, and I'd love for you to turn there in your Bibles if you have one. Um, if not, there's probably one in the pew in front of you, some or the pew, the chairs, they're not pews, uh, the chair in front of you somewhere, and uh, you're welcome to open that. If you also need a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible with you, by the way. We'd love for that to be our gift to you. Mark chapter 3, continuing out of last week, we saw last week two uh, different options for who Jesus is. Kristen, we saw Jesus respond with a third about who he actually is. And out of that, we got out of verses 20 through 21 from his own family that they thought he was crazy. What Mark does in this set of passages is he kind of brings us into a subject with his family, and then he brings us into another subject and deals with what you can call the Belzebul controversy, and not just that he may be crazy, but that he's actually evil and possessed by the devil. Now, Jesus is either crazy or evil, and... Unless, of course, you believe that he is Lord. And that's what we saw last week. And so we're continuing out of that. Before we read our verses today, I'd, I'd like to go back to his family in verse 20 and 21 so that we can read this fully in its, in its context. So starting in verse 20, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That brings us to 31, where his mother and brothers finally show up in the midst of the crowd. So starting in verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, church, this is a difficult passage. We read this and I think wonder how it is that Jesus could treat his family thusly, right? How could he turn away, ultimately, from those who he had lived with for so many years, the family that he was born into, um, those who were his actual mother, brother, and sisters. And then we, we are opened up to this idea that that Jesus is creating a new family. Now, for some of us, this is tremendously comforting, and we'll kind of come to that in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, what we, we need to see here is that what Jesus is doing is drawing a line in the sand. He's establishing a new family, and, and what he's doing is saying, and, and we need to know this, he is saying to his family, you guys are on the outside. And it is these, these of the crowd, these many of whom were strangers who are actually part of his family. This is actually far more insulting in his day than it would be in ours. I mean, we read this and we're a little bit shocked because we believe the family is 
good and important, and, and it is. But they believed far more about family. And again, we'll come to this. The line that Jesus draws to them, though, is on, and we read it in verse 35. So we're going to start with the end of our passage and then kind of work our way back through it. When he says this, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, the key of this passage is this phrase, the will of God. And, and in fact, he who does the will of God. It is those that do the will of God that are in this new family that Jesus is building. Now, something we need to just establish at the start of this is they are not part of the family because they do the will of God. But they do the will of God because they're part of the family. What happens in all of our lives is as we come to him, he, we are saved by grace through faith. We talked about this last week. We talk about it most weeks, honestly. Our faith, our salvation is a gift to us. And out of that salvation flows the obedience and the transformation that comes and the sanctification that we live in for the rest of our lives if we're in him. So the truth of someone's new life in Christ is revealed by what they do. And in this moment, the will of God means this. It means to be sitting, listening, and learning. Right? Jesus looks at this crowd, and we don't know how many are in that crowd, and he says of them, they're doing the will of God. They are actively involved in sitting and listening and learning from Jesus. And this is in direct contrast to what his family are doing as they stand on the outside, not listening and not learning from him about who he is and what he's calling his people to what he's saying, what Jesus is saying is that those who are sitting and listening and learning are doing the will of God, but his very family, his mother, his brothers, perhaps his sisters, are on the outside not doing the will of God. And that kind of leads us to wonder, what, what is the will of God? Well, in that moment, that is what it is. It is to be sitting, listening, and learning. But the Bible gives us a lot of instruction about what it means to be in or doing the will of God. This is not something we need to start off with a question because we are given the answer. Matthew 6.10, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is that we would be working in such a way, the Lord would be working in such a way in this world that it is becoming more and more like heaven. And though we may not see the fruitfulness of that in the world, church, we should see the fruitfulness of that in our lives and in the church and in the work that he calls us to. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God's will for us is that we would be involved in biblical justice, in fighting for the rights, the true God-given rights of humanity, 
of standing up for the little ones who need help, the weak and the wounded, to love kindness, right? To, to show the generosity and to outward works that we are called to and to walk humbly with your God. This is the will of God. Going on, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says this, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In what circumstances are we to give thanks? Well, in all of them, this is God's will for you. Well, that gets really easy when things are going really well and when the blessings feel like they're pouring out and when the abundance is all over the place. But what happens when it's not? What happens when cancer sets in? What happens when somebody dies? What happens when we lose our job? What happens when we have trouble paying our bills? Well, God's will for us is that we would continually be in all circumstances thankful. And the reason for that, I think, is because he's always there in those circumstances. For those of us who have been through those hard times, we often know um, out of them that God is far more active in our lives than we do even when things are going well and perfect. It is God's will for your life that you would be thankful in all circumstances. And yes, I, I know how hard that can be at times. It is will for us. Not only that, 1 Peter 2.15 for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God's will for you is that you would silence the objections to Christ through a transformed life. God's will for you is that, is that by doing what we are called to do and being who we're called to be, by seeing that sanctification work through in our lives, it would silence the objections. Why? Because nobody can argue with a transformed life. Now, they may, may take issue with your conclusions about how your life came about to transformation. But when they see in you a changed heart and a changed mind, even a changed vocabulary change actions, a devotion that's changed from selfish pursuits to pursuing kindness and love in the world. They can't argue with the results. And it silences the objections. This is God's will for your life, that in living for Christ, you would silence those who would shut him up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Church, it is the will of God that you would be sanctified, that you would be growing day after day, month after month, minute after minute, closer in likeness to Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified. It means to be made like him who saved us. And though none of us will reach 100% by the time we die, uh, we wait for the glorification that comes afterwards. We are all called to be sanctified in this life, growing deeper and deeper and deeper. And in Thessalonians, Apostle Paul highlights one particular area. That is in the area of sexual immorality. It's God's will for your life that any sexual experiences and encounters in your life would be in the confines and the joy of biblical marriage. And that every other aspect, every other 
option. Every other outflow would be put behind you. So whether that is having sex before marriage or whether that is pornography in marriage or out of it, or fantasy, or lust, or whatever it is. God's will for your life is that that stuff would be out and you would be sanctified in him. 1 Peter, oh, sorry, jumping on. Church, what I want you to know is hear this, that it is easier saying and talking about the will of God than it sometimes is to live it. But it is worth it. Because in him, we know that the better way is the will of God. The things that God wills for us is the better way. And, and those were the specifics, at least some of them. There's far more of them in Scripture. One of the great things is we can read the Bible and we can know what God's will for our lives is. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that there are some circumstances and situations the Bible doesn't address. I mean, there's questions we have about what should I do in a particular situation, in a particular place. And for that, what we need to know is that there's a way to know the will of God in those situations as well. Because knowing the will of God begins with a transformation of the mind. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, the word of God tells us many times in many places the different ways and the, what the will of God is. But where it doesn't, what we're told is that it is through the renewing of our minds that we will know the will of God. And that we can know the will of God. It's by the renewal of your mind. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2 echoes this. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter says it's in the way of thinking that we move our entire life from living in the flesh as we once did the sinful desires of the flesh to living in the flesh we still live in because we're still alive and living for God's will. The transforming of our minds. This actually brings us back into the passage. Jesus says, it is those who are sitting, listening, and learning who are doing the will of God. Amen? What are they doing? Their minds are being transformed by Jesus as he speaks. As the word of God comes out and flows from his mouth into their ears and into their hearts and their minds, into their souls, they are being transformed. This is why the Apostle Paul can hold foolishness up against the will of God. Ephesians 5.17 says this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Because it is in the renewing of our minds that we can do the will of God. That we can know it and we can live it. 
And all of this comes through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Again, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The equipping to do the will of God comes from Jesus. And Jesus tells us that he gives us the Holy Spirit into our lives as believers that we might be equipped. It is through Jesus, it is through the Holy Spirit in our lives that we are equipped to do the will of God. Not just to know it, but to do it, to live it. And church, that is how we become That is how we enter, and that is how we know we are a part of the family of God. Amen? See, those who are doing the will of God don't need someone else to tell them that they're in. They know it. They know it. They know that by what's going on in their lives, the obedience to the word of God and the will of God and the spirit leading them, that they are already a part of God's family. And if you don't know that you're a part of God's family, it might be because you're not doing the will of God. But hear this. Hear the promise that's made in our passage because not only are we told that we will do the will of God, Jesus says they are my family. Family, church. For some of us who have no family, Jesus is speaking from within a culture that believes family is everything. This was a part of the world at the time and still today believes that to dishonor or to shame one's family is the worst possible thing you can do. To the modern reader in America, we like our family, we cherish our family, we appreciate our family. But we don't live in a shame and honor culture in which doing something against our family will likely result in our death. If a family gathered together and decided that one of their family members was outside the bounds of what their family was doing, they had every right to go and arrest that person and drag them off and make them do what they wanted them to do. And Jesus is saying here, as he speaks about this, he's denying that his earthly family has any right to do that. I mean, he he speaks up and he says, they're not my family, you all are. He motions too and he verbally accepts the crowd, the strangers as his own before his own mother and brothers. The amazing thing, and I just think about this, from the perspective of family, this is horrifying. But from the perspective of the crowd, this is the best thing they've ever heard. Right? Especially because, and we forget this all the time, Jesus' followers were not popular. 
Jesus, his followers, were not well-liked. Nobody looked at them and thought, ah, this is the dominant culture. The reality is that there's a crowd of people following Jesus, and most of them have turned away from family, friends, and their religion to do so. Some of them have nothing left. We know James and John, when Jesus called them, they left their father Zebedee in his boat with his fishing business and his hired servants. All hope that their father had in them taking over the family business dashed on the rocks of their faith in Jesus. Levi had left a lucrative job. Yeah, one gets a lucrative job like that, Family connections. Later on, when the Apostle Paul is called, what does he do? He leaves everything behind. He leaves his status behind. He leaves his family behind. He leaves his friends behind. He leaves his degrees behind. He leaves everything behind. Why? Because Christ has called him. Do you know most scholars believe that the Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, was married? For the simple fact that Pharisees were married, always. Apostle Paul never makes mention of his, of his wife, so there is a bit of speculation in this. But it's interesting that of the very limited reasons the Apostle Paul gives Christians for the possibility of divorce, one of them is an unbelieving spouse who turns her back or his back on the believing spouse. Notice that the believing spouse is not allowed to turn their back on the unbelieving one. Jesus demands something in this passage. He demands something not only of them, not only of his family who are there, but of us. And this puts into context a whole lot of really difficult passages in the Bible, particularly in Jesus' words in the gospel. Mark 10, 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has is, who is left a house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, there are so many, many who are going to follow me. And in doing so, they will have to turn their back on houses, brothers, sisters, mother, father, even their own children, and on the property, the lands that they have for Jesus' sake and for the gospel. But what does he say? He says, there's not one of those who do that that will not receive a hundred times in this time, this time, this life, houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and land. What is he saying? He's saying all those who leave behind are forced to leave behind their family and their friends and everything they have in this life. I will give them a hundred times more. How is that possible? Well, church, look around. Because when we give up everything for him, what he does is he brings us in and he gives us the brothers and sisters, the family, 
of the church. Now notice, those come with what? Persecutions. But in the age to come, eternal life. I mean, if eternal life is the best promise ever, do you know what? You know what it is before that? Everything else is icing on the cake. Again, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 35 to 37, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's a difficult word. See, Jesus knows that there are some of those who will follow him who will lose everything, and that includes family. And he says a person must love him more than they love even their own kids, even their own spouse, or anything else in their entire life. And here's the thing. It's in this passage right here in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus says, hey, everything I'm calling you to, I'm in for too. Jesus doesn't call any one of us to give up everything in our lives without having done it first himself already. Now, here's what I know. I know that these passages, the two I've just read, in addition to Mark chapter 3 and this passage about Jesus' mother and brothers, we don't get it. Most of us do not get these verses. Those of us who do get them the best, get them because we know what it is like in our pursuit of Christ to have lost our families. And some of us, we grew up in families and systems where there is nothing but encouragement to go as deep as possible in the Lord. For some of us, we know nothing but that our human family, our earthly family is identical in many ways to our church family, to our faith family. And praise the Lord for that. If you are one of those counted as lucky and worthy of Lord, that your biological family is the same as your spiritual family, praise the Lord. Most of us don't have that or don't have it in the fullness some of us, we grew up in a very different family system. We had parents who hated the idea of God. And when you or when I, when we turned to Christ for salvation, when we became disciples of Christ, all it was met with was derision and ridicule and hatred. There are those in this world who grow up in another faith, maybe Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist. And when they turn to Christ, they lose everything. But they found it worth it. They've had to work through the pain of mourning a family that still lives. I'll tell you what, in my last church, we had a few different women who had grown up in Jehovah's Witness. When they at last had found the truth of the gospel in Christ, they were shunned not only by their church community, but by their families. Man, there are other quasi-Christian cults that do the same. Like, I don't know if you need to hear this today. Maybe it'll be somebody on the radio that needs to hear this next week. 
But if you've lost family, if you've lost friends for the sake of the gospel, then you need to hear this because Jesus Christ has made you part of his family. He's invited you in. Be encouraged because the family of Christ is far more eternal, far deeper, and far more loving than any family, any earthly family in this life. Now, some of us in here as well, we've lost family not because of faith, but because of sin. Right? There are those of us in this church, in this community, there are those of us who have lost family or friends because of sin, and that sin might have been somebody else's, or that sin might have been ours as we deep dove into sinful lives, we abandoned family and friends for drugs and alcohol or something else, we lost everything and not to faith, but to the enemy. Now our families won't take us back and they won't take us in. Well, here Jesus has promise. Here Jesus has promise. It is those that do the will of God that are his family. I mean, you can lose everything. You can lose everything to faith. You can lose everything to a sinful, broken life. But if you're in Christ, then you have everything. What I want us to know as we read this is that Jesus isn't saying family is unimportant. In fact, if he is saying family is unimportant, then he's actually neutralizing his love and his encouragement and building a new family, right? What he's saying is that as important as family is, your spiritual family is that much more. And again, he's drawing a line in the sand. He draws a line in the sand for his very family. This is the moment in their lives. This is the moment in their family system where they learn that nobody gets to lay claim to Jesus simply because of normal biological family relationships. Not even his mother and his brothers get a free pass. I mean, hear this. If somebody was going to get a free pass over a relationship, it would be Mary. She gave birth to the Savior of the world. See, what Jesus is doing, he's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, family, you must choose what our relationship will be. I mean, it's their time to choose. Are, are they going to see him as son and brother, or are they going to see him as Savior? Now, here's the good news. We're not told whether or not Jesus has any brothers and sisters who do not believe, but we are really pretty confident by the words of Scripture that both his mother and two of his brothers, James and Jude, get saved because they become leaders in the new church after Jesus' death and resurrection. So we don't know if there's others who never believe, but what seems to be is that their family comes to the Lord. At some point, they stopped resting in their natural family connections, and they became, as Jesus says in the passage here, those who do the will of God. At some point, they stopped opposing the work of God in Jesus' life and embraced it and rolled with it. Now, I think this was the line in the sand moment. I don't know if that all happened in this moment or if it was even a year later. 
or further out down the road later when they would finally come and believe, when, when it would make sense what Jesus had done here, what he had said that hurt them so much. Friends, we need to take stock of this because if Jesus' mother and brothers don't get a free pass, then neither do we. Your grandmother, who was a saint, doesn't get a handful of free entry tickets to hand out to the grandkids who never get it. Your parents, faithful as they are, never get some tickets, free pass tickets, right? Hand it out, say, all right, well, because you love the Lord, they're good. Jesus draws a line in the sand. That line in the sand is there for us as well. There is no free pass. You either believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You either trust in that with your life and you give it to him and, and then he works the will of God in your life flowing out of it or you don't. Again, if Jesus' and family don't get a free pass... There's nobody getting a free pass. But open to all of us, open to you, is a gift that comes with the salvation of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the resurrection which raises us to new life and empowers us to live within the will of God in the lives that we live from this day and until he comes again or until we die first. So, friends, as we think about our passage here, what I want to encourage you with, number one, is that if you are in Christ, if you have been saved, and if the will of God is flowing out of you because of him, then you're part of the family of God. And I want you to be encouraged by that. Some of us, we've lost everything to turn to the Lord. But what you cannot lose, what you will not lose, is the family of God. You cannot, you will not lose that because Christ is the one that establishes that. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know what? I rest on the fact that I show up to church every week or I rest on the fact that I had a really faithful, loving grandparent or parent. You're resting on anything other than a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you're resting on nothing. And today is the day to give your life to the Lord. Today is the day to confess him as Lord and Savior and to be saved and to be found in him. And if that's you today and the Spirit's moving in your heart and your life in that way, I would love for you to come speak with me during the, the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes or maybe it's, uh, right after church. We can speak, we can talk, we can connect and share what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe there's just somebody else in this room that you know loves Jesus and you want to talk to them about what it means to follow him. Praise the Lord. But if the Spirit's leading you in that, today's the day. Don't let a distraction creep up. Don't let a, a rush off to a dinner, a lunch plan or something else going on keep you from that. Let it be today if the Spirit's leading you there. Come and confess your need for Jesus. He loves you and he welcomes you into his family.
Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much. And if that statement isn't true for anybody in this room, Lord, I pray that you would make it so today, that we would appreciate the sacrifice that you've made, Lord. We would be part of that crowd that hears those words, these are my mother and my brother and my sisters. Lord, encourage our hearts. Help us to have a vision for this, not just for ourselves, but for this community in this valley, Lord, for the lost of this world that need to know there is a family waiting for them. God, I pray that you would open doors, hearts, minds, that you would transform us in the love of Christ, that we might be a people who do the will of God. And Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.